0: Welcome back to Sashimi! In this episode, I interviewed Mark Strauch, a founding partner of Alpine Investors, which is a $6 billion private equity firm that invests in recurring revenue businesses and software. Mark is also a chairman of Alpine Software Group, or ASG, which is a unique holding company that they've built by acquiring SaaS companies within 9 different verticals with the goal of building them up over the long-time horizon. Mark discussed Alpine's unique take on talent, the profile of companies they invest in, particularly SaaS 2.0, how they find opportunities, and the type of diligence they perform prior to acquisitions. He also shared how his prior experience as CEO of SaaS companies helps with investment decisions. But first, let me tell you about the sponsor of this entire season of sashimi, Celigo. Seligo is the leading enterprise-wide integration platform as a service for the mid-market companies Named the G2 best software for 2021, saligo enables breakaway growth, controlled cost management and superior customer experiences by ensuring that every process at any level of organization can be automated in the most optimal way. For more information, visit soligo.com or just click the link in the description. And now back to the interview with Mark Strauch.
1: Mark, thank you very much for being on Sashimi. You're a founding partner at Alpine, and we're obviously going to be talking about the firm and private equity in general, but why don't we start with your career path to where you currently are?
2: Yeah, well, as our first, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Mark Strauch, and like you said, I'm one of the founding partners at Alpine, a private equity firm in San Francisco, and I've been in Silicon Valley for, well, 30 years now. started out in consulting and did a stint in banking. And then I ended up running a few companies, one of which was an Alpine-backed company, and that's how I really got to know the firm in the early days. And then joined as as one of the founding partners, and here
1: I am today. So, what's Alpine like when somebody asks you what's special about the firm?
2: Well, I mean, just the basics. Alpine was founded 20 years ago. We're on our eighth fund. We have about six billion of capital under management. But I think the more interesting piece is what we're known for. And I think one of the most unique things about our firm is our emphasis on talent. Our view is that remarkable investment outcomes come from exceptional leadership. And so many years ago, we began building two programs that would become the main expression of our philosophy on talent, the CEO and residence program and the CEO and training program. And the idea there was to what could happen if you infused our companies with leaders who we call high attribute leaders that are aligned on our values trained in our growth playbook and you know what could that unlock for our companies and fast forward to today and it's i would say been the probably single biggest underpinning of our success you know as investors and business builders
1: and I think I've heard that a lot of times when you guys acquired a company, you have the CEOs in training are the ones who would be taken over at some point. And can you tell me a little bit about the CEO and training program?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, maybe just to rewind to the philosophy and then the program from that, Peter Thiel, one of the founders of PayPal, he's fond of asking a question in interviews, which is, you know, what's one thing that you believe in, that the rest of the world disagrees with you on? And uh, I love that question. We've answered that question at Alpine in the context of leadership talent. And basically, the rest of the world has generally hired based on track record. You know, what you've accomplished, what you've done. And we agree, certainly, that track record is important and correlated with success, right? People who have won will probably generally continue to win. But I think what we believe even more powerfully is that it's it's something else that's actually causal for that success. And we call that attributes, your personal characteristics, like will to win or humility or grit. And so we spent time really geeking out on this and tried to develop a way to assess and ascertain those characteristics, which are pretty subjective things, and as data driven a way as we could. And so the result was you know, what if we created a, there's a residency for, you know, being a doctor, could we create that for being a CEO? And that's really what the CEO and training program is. We hire exceptional high attribute people from the top business schools. We then, they go to work and get matched into one of our companies at a very senior level where they're mentored by a kind of been there, done that CEO. And they're also then getting deep training and all the hard and soft skills of leadership. And they're in kind of a YPO cohort in our own talent community with other CEOs. And so the learning is very intentional and very rapid. And so it was just like a glimmer in our eye in a way seven, eight years ago. And fast forward to today, it's amazing. I mean, I don't even we've become the number one sought after job at Harvard, Stanford and Kellogg business schools. And we never, you know, imagined it would be that successful, but we're humbled by that. And I think the market wanted what we're trying to provide.
1: Is it because you basically create this, the easy, not the easiest, but the shortest path to CEO for this graduate?
2: I think that's part of it, yeah. I mean, we do believe in betting on people sometimes before the rest of the world is ready to make that bet. So that's probably true. I do think it's more than that though. It's not just the timing or the duration. It's just also the idea of how intentional we're trying to be like, what if you really wanted to say, what does great leadership look like for, you know, we invest in recurring revenue, software and services businesses. So what exactly is that, you know, from a track record standpoint and from an attribute standpoint? And what if you went about intentionally building that in these amazing high potential people who have everything to prove to the world and who are ready to get after it. And it turns out that, It's an enormously untapped sort of market making, isn't it, of the talent that's out there and so wants the ball, so to speak. And then the companies who covet that talent, but perhaps on their own, maybe wouldn't be able to access that as readily as perhaps we can as Alpine, putting those two pieces together. So yeah, it's been amazing. And it continues to be something that just compounds and we're very happy with it.
1: So let's talk about the companies you typically invest in. I'm talking about the profile. What's the vertical? How big is the size of ARR? Maybe some other metrics that you typically want to see.
2: Well, on the software side, we really covet what has become known as rule of 40. Companies that are growing 20 to 30% per year, at least, and operating also at the same time at 20 to 30% earnings margins. And these are businesses that usually have 80 plus percent gross margins. And then, you know, if you think about the leading indicators for businesses like this, you look at metrics like net revenue retention at or above 100%, because that usually is a marker for a highly, you know, a company that's developed a highly defensible competitive mode. And so we found a deep reservoir of companies that fit that profile in vertical SaaS. I think that's really been our main go-to Area, in terms of size, it's a big range. So we have a terrific down market buy and build solution for a business that's, you know, maybe growing eighty to one hundred percent, but it's only two to five million of ARR. You know, on one hand, and then on the larger end, you know, we'll do platform investments in software companies that are at or above hundred million in ARR. So it's a big range, and primarily it's vertical software rather than horizontal, though not exclusively. And then primarily, you know, it's application software. We've done a little bit of infrastructure and cyber, but primarily, you know, vertical SaaS has been our big sweet spot.
1: Why is that? What why not the cyber and infrastructure? What's different about that? Well,
2: I think cyber and infrastructure are super interesting areas. And it's less that those are not attractive areas. And it's more that we're fond of quoting Bruce Lee the paragon of business uh, school intelligence. He, his quote is, I don't fear the man who has 10,000 kicks. I fear the man who has one kick practiced 10,000 times. And so I suppose we just believe in the power of focus. And so vertical SaaS is our one kick. Uh, we, we we do other things too. But I, the, the other thing I want to say about vertical SaaS is we really believe that about seven or eight years ago, there was a new cohort of companies, which we thought of as SaaS 2.0, which were very different than the first generation of SaaS businesses. And they differed in a couple of conspicuous respects. One, they weren't venture-backed. They were bootstrapped. Two, they weren't in Silicon Valley. They were everywhere but. Three, they weren't horizontal. They were decidedly in vertical niches that serve very homogeneous set of customers with you know very tailored solutions to the workflow of that vertical. And so these businesses were many of them rule of 40 at a pretty young age. And so we thought, wow, this is interesting. And we leaned into that. And that's how we created one of our biggest and most successful portfolio investments, a company called ASG. The company that we founded and built from the ground up five years ago, it's the largest software portfolio company in in Alpine's portfolio. And it's a holding company that in the last five years has completed nearly 50 acquisitions across 10 different vertical markets. And for each of those verticals, we're buy and build over the long haul. And the idea of ASG is there has emerged this SaaS 2.0 cohort of companies that are very interesting, bootstrapped, and vertical. And But these businesses could really benefit from some specialized subject matter expertise in areas like tech and sales and marketing and M&A to sort of accelerate their growth from level one to level 10. And, And so ASG has become the destination of record for those types of businesses where the incubation of that growth can happen. There's a dedicated team of subject matter experts in each of those areas I mentioned. And we make them available to these companies. And they're in different verticals, but they face in many ways the same challenges.
1: So, then is it fair to say that when you select where, when you are buying a company and you select which we belong, you look at whether it's a bootstrap smaller company that goes to ASG and the one that actually well established goes to Alpine main funds? Is it fair? I
2: I think that's a good shorthand. (laughs) But what I would want to add as maybe an asterisk to that is once you're in a market in ASG and in, in some meaningful way, and now you've built a business that's 60, 70, 80 million of ARR you know, in, say, behavioral health software, and then along comes another opportunity for us, which is a 100 million ARR acquisition, it, the absolute right place for that to go is into ASG. So it's not purely a size distinction, mm-hmm. but it does start that way. And then, you know, many times we'll get into a market with a so-called small start. But then as we grow, we because we're a strategic buyer and we know the landscape, You know, sometimes the add-ons are bigger than the starting investment.
1: Got it. And I think I asked you this question already. So people who listen and they probably are thinking, okay, this reminds me of Constellation software. How is it different from Constellation software?
2: Well, we've admired Constellation. Software, So whoever would be tempted to draw that parallels is not wrong in the sense that Constellation, is, you know, has become a very successful publicly traded business on the Toronto Exchange, aggregating, well, subscale software companies, I guess. I think mm-hmm. where we have tried to go in a slightly different direction with ASG is we're looking at really growth-oriented businesses as opposed to sometimes slightly more mature, lower growth businesses that Constellation focuses on, at least that's our perception. And we're also really SaaS only. So not Mm -hmm. not interested in legacy on-prem license uh, models for uh, ASG. So I think there's a growthier more feel to it, but definitely we respect and really have admired what Constellation has been able to do over the years. And we wanna be a long-term home for these growthier SaaS businesses uh, in ways that are similar to what Constellation did.
1: When you look at the um, SaaS market and valuation in particular, and over the last few months, we saw the correction in public markets. What happened with valuations of SaaS companies in the private markets?
2: Well, there wasn't as big a correction, but there was a little bit of a correction. You know. There's lots of private equity firms, as you know, that want to own businesses with the characteristics that I have described, you know, on this podcast. And so these businesses on the private side are in high demand. There's no question about that. And they typically trade in the five to 10 times annual recurring revenue. On the public side, you'll see multiples of ARR even higher than that, as you know. And so one of the things we look at is the private company discount you know, between the public and the private valuations. And we the nominal percent of the discount is less important, but the movements in that discount are fairly interesting. And so when the market traded up over the last 12 months prior to the recent correction, that private company discount, or if you like, public company premium, expanded fairly dramatically. And that then creates sometimes some unrealistic expectation of private sellers uh, who feel entitled to those valuations as well. And since that correction that you refer to, that discount has come down. And usually when that discount comes down, there's more deal-making and the velocity of M&A in the private markets increases. So it's definitely a competitive world out there. But I think if you, you know, we can talk for hours on the subject of valuation, of course, But I think if you look over the 30 years that I've been in software, that's really the entire history of the application software industry, frankly. I just happen to be lucky to be standing there. You see these companies that are trading at high valuations, not all of them, they're not entitled to this, but many of them just prevailing over the long term. And because they're mission critical to their customers, they have recurring revenue they're capable of being durable, high margin, growing businesses for a long time. And they ultimately end up producing earnings at a high level. And so when you impute sort of the earnings multiple a few years into your deal, it's like, wow, okay, actually, very reasonable. But they're eye-popping to start with. There's no question about that.
1: You mentioned, and it's obviously the fact that there are quite a few players in the SaaS market from the perspective of private equity funds, there are specialized funds and there are funds that have a dedicated team. How do you guys compete with them? What do you offer that they don't?
2: Well, we have respect for a lot of the, I mean, really all of the players that are out there. And you know, I I get asked all the time, you know, how do you compete with other private equity funds? And I always give a horribly underwhelming answer to that question, (laughs) which I'm going (laughs) to apologize in advance on. But I guess the best way to answer it is we try not to compete. With other private equity funds. And I don't mean to be flippant about that. I think there's actually something underneath that that's important to point out. You know, probably 95 to maybe 99% of private equity firms out there are looking for the same thing. And they are interested in always backing continuing management and for good reason. There's a lot of good management teams out there, and it's certainly easier to carry on with the existing team than it is to bring new talent in. But we've taken a different path on that because we have become very clear on the fact that there is a large market of businesses that, for whatever reason, don't come with continuing management or aren't suited to that, or there's a life change or a founder who's technical who wants to really be the CTO or whatever it may be, or it's a carve out, in which case we're sort of fishing in an entirely different pond where we're looking for businesses that are a little bit the photo negative uh, of, at least from a leadership standpoint of many of the other private equity funds. So I think that's a big part of where we begin. We source aggressively as do many funds and all of the traditional channels you would expect. We are over-indexed in direct, heavily researched outreach uh, sourcing. We have also referral you know engagements with parties that we can provide success fees to in the event they bring deals to us on an exclusive basis. And really what we're trying to do is play a different game to the degree we can by hunting in a different place, number one. And then number two, providing a different solution. I mean, yes, it's private equity. And so I suppose that's the same, but the, what we try to provide certainly with ASG is very, very different proposition. And I think providing ongoing leadership talent is is something that many of these companies really value. That's like putting jet fuel in their in their tank.
1: And uh, you mentioned direct outreach. You mean somebody at Alpine is calling every single company you found in some database that possibly is on sale?
2: Well, even better, the ones that are not for sale, right? I mean, I think the name of the game in private mm-hmm. equity is more and more, you know, you really need to be a strategic buyer. Which is mm-hmm. to say, if you're coming to the table as, "Hey, I'm a private equity firm, and I'm not in the space. You're an interesting company. I'd like to buy you, and you're for sale." You know, you're kind of <laughs> you're facing 20 other firms saying the exact same thing. So I do think it's, you know, there's a lot of smart people in private equity, and I think people know that you really got to be a strategic buyer some way, somehow. And I think part of that is just picking a strategy that is less populated as level one, and then level two is having a toolkit of, you know, value add post close that maybe other companies don't necessarily have. So that's that's a little bit how we again I told I told you it was going to be an underwhelming answer, somewhat of a cop out that you know. But uh, there you have it.
1: But 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 it's clear. And I when I was looking at the website of ASG's website, there is a, something called. G finder and it kind of caught my attention so basically my understanding is anyone can go in there put the name of the company website and the revenue etc and if you like the company and that if that person can make introduction that person can be rewarded with what does what it say 25 to 400 grand
2: yeah i mean i think this is an example of what we were just talking about i mean obviously if you're going to be in the majority buyout market, investing in these businesses is a very deep undertaking. There's a lot of research and work to be done, of course, to make sure the Mm -hmm. investments are the right ones. But so much of what your success ends up being is the shots on goal. Did you get opportunities to meet companies you really want to meet and so asg finder is a program that's aimed at the top of the funnel as a result and it's an example of several programs that we have to access the long tail of really interesting companies that may be a little bit off the radar and provide people an incentive to introduce us i mean it's on us to under underwrite the diligence and persuade the seller that we're a terrific partner and home for the business but We'll take care of all that, so we don't need the referring party to do much. But we do, we do need to know about the company in the first place, and and so that's what that program is.
1: To be clear, that program is not just for brokers; it's actually for individuals as well, right? Somebody who's listening to this podcast, maybe have a friend who yeah. has a SaaS company. Maybe he can or yeah. she can convince, right? Is, is right. that fair? That's
2: fair. That's fair.
1: Okay, whatever. If if you have a friend who wants to sell, oh, not sell, who has a SaaS company. You go to SG Finder, and you convince your friend to sell it, and you get commission. Don't even tell your friend that's, that's happening. So you get paid. Fair, Fair. Here yeah, you right. So what's a typical process like from sourcing to diligence and the closing?
2: Well, it varies a lot, as you might imagine, depending on the situation. I think maybe one way to answer that is kind of what we don't want to do. What we don't want to do <laughs> is sort of fall prey to what is very can very easily happen in private equity, which is kind of a treadmill of processing a lot of deals. Like say you have 12 deals on your radar and you're, you're sort of cranking through the early days of assessment of those deals and you're giving one twelfth of your time to each of those 12 things, right? And it's about as uninspiring as it sounds, not just for you as a private equity firm, but what if you were the seller and that's what you were getting? right? No, thank you. So we, one of the big things that we did was really what we call Sprint Pass. And Sprint Pass is a philosophy that says, if these certain things turn out to be true about these companies, these, about this company, some target, the five key assumptions that really matter in underwriting this business, if they turn out to be true, we're Sprint. This is a deal we a this is a deal we'd want to do, this is a company we'd want to help build and sprint, and so staff a team, you know, build on our expert understanding of that market and get going uh, and sprint uh, or pass and sort of forcing a earlier upstream binary choice so that we don't fall prey to the 1 of your time on 12 different deals. And instead we're sprinting after the ones that we really think have potential and just passing early on others that we imagine we just can't get there from here. So there's gonna be a little bit of loss in the system, maybe from a false negative pass, but the power of the true positives via the sprint really overwhelms that, really overcompensates for that. And so it's been something that we really have emphasized. And then the other thing we've emphasized in our process is fit and relationships. You know, We are the opposite of transactional. I mean, on one hand, private equity is, has come of age as a transactional, you know, short horizon asset class, but we're sort of endeavoring to be the opposite of that. You know, we believe that life is short, but relationships are long and selling your business, you know, or part of your business is like inviting someone into your living room. You know, it's personal. It's about treating people right and honoring the legacy of how the business has been successful in the past. And then also introducing how it can grow to reach even new levels of success. And so, as much as investing is a highly quantitative, you know, financially sophisticated thing. On the other hand, it's, it's the social studies of fit as well. And so I think Sprint Pass is a big thing for us. Relationships and fit are a big thing for us. And then certainly in software, you know, technology and customer diligence is, a, is as you would imagine, a, a very big area that we spend a lot of time on.
1: How long do you think the typical process take?
2: Well, You know it varies. I mean, we're we're obviously like many others, wanting to move as quickly as we can to Mm -hmm. to position ourselves uh, properly. So we'll we'll get deals done within thirty days. uh, Sometimes even less. But you know, I would say a lot of firms talk about that from a marketing standpoint. I would say the average transaction probably start to close is is more like sixty days, something like that.
1: Makes sense. So uh, private equity is known for putting leverage, putting debt on the companies. Is Alpine structuring the deals the same way as ASG or it's slightly different?
2: Well, it's it's pretty similar. So whether it's Alpine or ASG, we're looking for the same basic profile that we refer to, right? Recurring revenue, mm-hmm. growing, profitable, rule of 40, competitive mode, high net revenue retention. And then you know we're real believers in the power of, the capital structure to drive right decision-making. Like We believe in that sometimes there's a false trade-off between growth and profit. We think sometimes you can have your cake and eat it too. And if you really are a good choice maker about what you choose not to do, what products you choose not to build and, and so on. And so both at Alpine and at ASG, we'll try to structure deals with you know debt, but not too much. Because the last thing of course you wanna do with a high growth, high total addressable market, high vitality company is tying its hands behind its back from a free cash flow standpoint, you know, because you're paying off too much debt instead of plowing back into some growth areas. So we're very cognizant of that. You know, I don't know that we always get it right. Of course, uh, you can't be perfect, but I would say we're sort of moderate in our use of capital structure. And that by and large, it's a similar across Alpine and AST.
1: You've been an operator, right? For a long time. How was this transition for you from the operator to investor? What the uh do you miss anything in operation? And did you learn something as an investor that you didn't know as an operator and vice versa?
2: Well, the one thing I get asked this question a lot, I I think the one thing I can say with high conviction is that knowing what I know now as an investor would have made me a better operator, I think. (laughs) And I do believe the corollary, the reverse is also true, that having been a CEO and understanding how to, Build enterprise selling models and how to actually go about building teams and you know all the things that you do i think it has benefited me as an investor uh, certainly and i don't think that's a necessary path of course many people don't follow that path for me it's it's good i i do like being bilingual between the sort of investing and diligence sometimes slow thinking modality and also the business building, faster thinking modality that you would, you would have as a CEO. Sorry, that was a very geeky way to say it. If I decode that, <laughs> let me say that in English. The CEOs probably make thousands of decisions a year. I mean, I never stopped to measure it, but it, it's really a remarkable rate of choice making over and over and over again. And as an investor, I would be doing my job well if I made four really good decisions a year but they were really good and highly reasoned and careful. And so I have enjoyed the context switching between the two. I it'll be for others to decide, you know, how good I am at that, but I've learned a lot in both sides and I I guess what I would say to people is if you have an opportunity to experience both sides you should. There's no one path, but it's definitely made me more sympathetic to the challenges of founders and CEOs who grow businesses and what they're up against. You know, it's not a spreadsheet. It's a super carbon-based, difficult, you know, real-life thing.
1: You mentioned that when you guys acquire a company, a lot of times it's a bootstrapped, it's not uh, set up correctly, etc. What are some main mistakes do you see in these companies? What do you guys tend to fix the, more often?
2: Well, I might frame it a little bit different than that in the sense that we, we're not investing in businesses that. Need fixing per se. They're not broken. They're healthy. They're growing businesses. These the CEOs and founders we encounter. They're remarkably clever, skilled people. But probably, if the question is more around where do we typically invest in, you know, if you, time and time again, I think invariably it is in two main areas. One is the team and the talent. So we are very much believers in you know it's who, not what, and so making sure that early in our hold, we have a team that is on fire with its mission, crystal clear in its priorities, and you know has the capital and runway to do its thing and grow, that that's where we're hiring people, we're bringing in leadership talent to augment the team, et cetera. That's thing one that almost invariably we're, we're doing. And then thing two is, we love add-on M&A. I mean, who doesn't? When you can do add-on acquisitions and create step function in organic growth it's a beautiful thing the perils there are that it can be hard especially in software and people can get it wrong but we spend a lot of time leaning into day one building out target add-on you know roadmaps and really bringing to bear our playbook on how to integrate M&A how to be high speed and low drag with with what you choose to integrate when you when you buy a company so those would be the two biggest areas that we focused on if i had to pick a third it would be sales and marketing we're typically adding headcount and the companies we buy have proven you know customer acquisition economics so we want to hit the more button
1: got it and you're a chairman of ASG right yes so i looked at the on the website there is obviously the portfolio of the companies the subsidiaries of ASG each of them has its own ceo i'm guessing a lot of times ceo are from either from ceo in training or ceo in residence is it Yes. And, but also ASG has its own CEO. What are the dynamics between them? What type of decision each of them make?
2: Well, one of the underlying philosophies is that ASG is sort of a team of teams. And Alpine's like that too. You know, We believe in the power of distributed decision-making subject to certain you know, parameters. And so empowerment is a vibrant core value of Alpine and ASG. And, and so the way we've set it up is Steve Reardon is the CEO of ASG and together with Steve at the holding company, we have a executive team. We have a COO, a CFO, head of M&A and a chief technology officer. And we also have a hold co team working with that leadership group. And so their job is the overall health and happiness of the businesses and the leaders that we have back to run those businesses. The way we think about it is the CEO of the operating company is the the CEO, period. I mean, there's no, you know, matrixed hybrid structure that would create confusion and distant power leaders. And if you think about it, if your thesis was talent and you wanted to recruit these amazing high attribute leaders, like the last thing you would want to do is clip their wings. So... But having said that, there's challenges now that we have so much pattern recognition, having done 50 of these vertical SaaS deals. And so picture the leadership team of ASG providing enormous accelerant based on the patterns that we've seen, advice, governance, assistance, connecting to the subject matter experts that are on the hold code team. That's really their role. And we think of ASG as an enterprise that needs to become a 10, 15, $20 billion company someday. And so there's a lot to do to build a business like that. And that's, that's the focus of the whole, whole co-team.
1: Well, oh, that's interesting. That's actually answering my next question. So if you think ESG would be that big, is it planned to take it public one day or what's the?
2: Well, it's an interesting question that we've spent time considering. Certainly when myself and my two co-founders started the business five years ago, it was our view that we would take it public and that this would be the best, Way to create this sustainable long term home for these vertical SaaS businesses. And then, you know, life is what happens when you're making other plans, as they say. <laughs> and so, you know, as we went down that path, we were having great success. We were really pleased with ASG's growth. And a few years into it, we realized that the opportunity for micro aggregation in each of these verticals was so profound, it was bigger than we thought. And so, when you Become a strategic buyer in legal tech or in behavioral health or in hospitality software, whatever, you you end up really zooming in in a big way in those markets. And then you become a student of the game of all of the businesses that are out there and the different nuances of their strategies and so on. And so we realized, wait a minute, we can build really big and important you know, 50, 80, 100 million ARR vertical SaaS businesses inside of ASG. And we should do that and then that liberates each of the verticals to kind of describe its own path but, you know does it, does it maybe we should hold this vertical for this company for 16 years maybe this one is a 4 year hold and it's time to exit or this one you know has a certain set of strategic buyers where this other one has a different set of, of potential buyers and so i think where we are now is is building asg as a single company but recognizing that each vertical may have its own outcome of some shape or form with, with its own timing that makes sense for.
1: And there is no pressure from investors to cash out, right?
2: Well, no. I mean, I, I, what I would say is I think investors today are really getting more sophisticated about the different ways that you can create some liquidity for managers and even some liquidity options for the limited partners and still hold an asset and keep going, right? So we have done in a few cases, continuation vehicles, where we give our investors the opportunity to cash out if they so wish or rollover or, or status quo. And they love that because of course it puts the power in their hands to do what they wish, what is best for their portfolio. And they also love it because we're able to create an outcome that creates liquidity for those who need it and then keep going you know, and holding the business because there's so much more we can do in these markets. So I think there's more and more alternative ways to try to separate the outright exit decision from liquidity. And uh, I think that has been a a positive for LPs. I think it's been a positive for GPs and it's been a positive for the companies that, that we've done that with.
1: Mark, thanks very much. I really appreciate you being on the podcast and sharing the story of ASG, which is very unique in the industry and Alpine itself. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Asnar. My pleasure.